Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. I did say that we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And as to land, we all inherit the earth so that when land is improved through cultivation, it is the improvement alone and not the earth itself that is individual wealth. So that custodians of land must pay the community a tax for the land which they hold. And that tax will finance a national fund to pay everyone at age 21 a sum in compensation for their lost inheritance of land and a sum every year to every person aged 50 and to those blind and disabled who cannot provide for themselves for the rest of their lives. And this will not be a charity, but a right. Justice. Always justice. Any country that can say, my poor are happy and there is neither ignorance or, nor suffering to be found among them. My jails are empty of prisoners, my streets of the homeless, the elderly are taken care of, the taxes are not oppressive, the rational world is my friend, that country has a right to boast its constitution and its government. greatest good that we can achieve is to ensure that all people have the support and the comforts that they deserve, that are their rights. Good evening, my fellow Americans, or whatever it is that you are. I am Daniel McCarthy, and this is the Story of Nowhere podcast, episode 13, Agrarian Justice, a liberal alternative to socialism?
Question? Today's show is going to be about a short little pamphlet published in 1797 by our good friend Thomas Paine, and I promise I will piss you off in this episode. The pamphlet is called Agrarian Justice. Well, actually, the full title is Agrarian Justice, Opposed to Agrarian Law and to Agrarian Monopoly being a plan for ameliorating the condition of man by creating in every nation a national fund to pay every person, when arriving at the age of twenty-one years, the sum of fifteen pounds sterling to enable him or her to begin the world, and also ten pounds sterling per annum during life to every person now living of the age of fifty years, and to all others when they shall arrive at that age, to enable them to live in old age without wretchedness, and go decently out of the world, by Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense, Rights of Man, Age of Reason, and cetera, and cetera. So that pretty much sums it all up. Man, you know, I really love those old-style titles. And a Tootsie Roll to anyone who can recite the entire title of Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe without looking it up. Anyway, Payne. He wrote this pamphlet towards the end of the French Revolution as a plan for how an impending, enlightened, rational society might deal with poverty, old age, cripples, etc. And of course, his plan was never really put into action in France, or for that matter, anywhere. But by gum, he had a plan, and I want to talk about it, and here's why. I've actually got two reasons. First, this text has been almost completely overshadowed by Paine's other works, Common Sense, Rights of Man, Age of Reason, and etc. Not to mention the works of the other American founders. It might, therefore, surprise some people to learn that in agrarian justice, Thomas Paine, the great Enlightenment liberal, lays out a plan for wealth redistribution. As I speak, I can hear the Republicans reaching for a baby aspirin. Diving into this short work will give us a more complete picture of the intellectual landscape of early America. And yes, it is true that Paine was actually in Europe when he wrote this, and he outlines his plan in terms of British pounds sterling. But, as he wrote in his inscription of the French edition, quote, The plan contained in this work is not adapted for any particular country alone. The principle on which it is based is general, unquote. And of course, in that big title of his, it even says, quote, by creating in every nation a national fund, unquote. It stands to reason, then, that this general proposal would apply to the American nation, which Paine himself played no small role in founding. Second, Socialism arose from the Enlightenment. Like, specifically, the philosophy of socialism really came out of the French Revolution. Sure, we can go back in time and point to some proto-socialist stuff. Of course, Plato's Republic and Moore's Utopia and the English and German peasants' revolts. But the first, honest-to-God, bona fide socialists are going to come directly out of the Enlightenment. They spring directly out of the Enlightenment tradition. So what I want to explore today is this. Is Paine's agrarian justice actually an early socialist tract? Or was he actually providing a distinct non-socialist route to what we would today call a more equitable society that just wound up losing out to socialism in the end? While this may sound like some historical philosophical hair-splitting, 
It's actually a really interesting idea if you consider that the socialist position is that socialism would inevitably and progressively follow from a liberal, capitalist society. Maybe Paine saw a different historical progression that would still address the major problems that socialists saw without having to actually buy into all of their proposed solutions. Or maybe he himself was a proto-socialist. Marxists.org seems to think so. Hell, Marxists.org lists Paine as a Marxist. Or maybe this all is just hair-splitting. But that's what philosophy's all about, right? Split hairs, not atoms, bitch. All right, so I want to start by just clearing up some definitional stuff. We're going to find out what agrarian justice means soon enough, but in that long-ass title, Paine also throws in the terms agrarian law and agrarian monopoly. Though he doesn't explicitly tack a proper definition onto either of these terms, it's pretty clear from the text what he's referring to. Essentially, when he says agrarian law and agrarian monopoly, he means the old system of private land ownership, in which a chunk of profitable land is passed down generation to generation, cementing in the social structure a more or less permanent landed nobility. Of course, socialists would later address something somewhat similar, namely the bourgeoisie ownership of the means of production, which they tend to see, rightly or wrongly, as an extension of the feudal system which Paine and other Enlightenment thinkers battled so bitterly against. Paine saw the poverty and destitution the old system forced so many into, as it ensured that only a relatively small class could ever hope to enjoy material comfort. However, despite all the problems it caused, or at least failed to prevent, he also saw the tremendous good that property owners had done, you know, like building civilization. And, of course, though the old system in which agrarian law sanctified agrarian monopoly cast so many into abject poverty, it also raised so many up to almost unimaginable levels of affluence by making nearly infinite material development possible. In other words, the old system revealed that material progress was actually on the table in this dog-eat-dog world. Regarding civilization, Paine says, quote, on one side, the spectator is dazzled by splendid appearances. On the other, he is shocked by extremes of wretchedness, both of which he has erected. The most affluent and the most miserable of the human race are to be found in the countries that are called civilized. Unquote. And skipping ahead just a few sentences, quote, Poverty, therefore, is a thing created by that which is called civilized life. It exists not in the natural state. On the other hand, the natural state is without those advantages which flow from agriculture, arts, science, and manufactures. The life of an Indian, that is, an American Indian, is a continual holiday compared with the poor of Europe, and on the other hand, it appears to be abject when compared to the rich. Civilization, therefore, or that which is so called, has operated two ways, to make one part of society more affluent and the other part more wretched than would have been the lot of either in a natural state, unquote. This is a fair enough point. You wouldn't expect to find vast class differences in a tribal culture. Instead, these societies tend toward a certain degree of equity, so that, well, to put it in Marxist terms, it goes from each according to his ability to each according to his need. According to Paine, 
That's more or less how it works in a primitive tribal setting. And that's all well and good, he says, in a tribal setting, because there aren't a whole ton of people to take care of. There's not a whole mess of infrastructure, and if you're in a good location, there's literally free food all over the place in the form of nuts and berries and vegetables and small game, big game, so everyone's fine. But he very importantly points out that the whole equity from each according to his ability to each according to his needs thing, and obviously he doesn't use those words, but he says that sort of thing just ain't going to work in a civilized society. Why? Precisely because there are a lot of people, there is a lot of infrastructure, and you can't have people just shooting deer on Main Street. And hell, even if you could, you still probably aren't going to bag enough to feed everybody before the deer wise up and quit wandering into town. And yet, civilization is good, he says. So the question becomes, slightly paraphrased, how do we remedy the evils and preserve the benefits of civilized society? This is a pretty damn good question. His answer uh, may surprise you. But before getting to that, I want to point out some parallels to socialist thinkers in his framing of this question. Specifically, these parallels are to be found in the problems he sees in society. For one thing, he sees the problem of destitution arising from the existence of a property-holding class. And this class doesn't just hold any sort of property, but productive property the agrarian equivalent of Marx's industrial means of production. So there's a similarity between Paine and the socialists. Another similarity is the belief that so-called natural man is equitable and that so-called civilized man is not. Also like so many socialists, not least Marx, Paine recognized the material benefits made possible by the wealthy class of his day. So far, Tom Paine is pretty much on the same page as most socialists who would live after him, including Karl Marx, who would be born just 21 years after the publication of Agrarian Justice and just nine years after Paine's death in 1809. Very interesting, no? So let's see how our boy Tom here wants to solve these problems and see if his solutions line up with the socialists. Right off the bat, he says, look, this whole civilization deal is really a bum deal if we can't promise that everyone's going to be better off with it than they would be without it. This is a really interesting point, kind of from a business perspective. Like, if I'm selling a product, I need to convince you that you'll actually be better off if you buy it than if you don't buy it. Otherwise, why would you spend the money? Then, of course, my product better actually deliver on what I said it would, or I'll be committing fraud or something. So Payne is basically applying this law of business to civilized society itself. It's a nice thought, certainly a goal worth striving for anyway. Basically, improving living conditions beyond the natural default should be the purpose of civilization. And this means for everybody, not just a minority. As I said, this is nice, but I think it could be fleshed out a little bit more. See, when I first read that, I scoffed, cynical bastard that I am, and said... Actually, the default situation is starving to death after your child gets mauled by a mountain lion. The default is absolute zero. No food, no shelter. You get nothing! You lose! Good day, sir! Really, anything would be better than that, so what Payton's saying doesn't really make any sense. But 
I calmed down a bit and thought, well, I guess it's not actually right to say that zero is the default. I mean, you're born, and that means you've probably got parents, and there are probably other people around, and they've probably been around for a while, and maybe they even know how to do things. And they probably learned from other people who came before them, who learned from people who came before them, and so on and so on and so on. In other words, the default situation for the human species is to live in a culture, just like you would expect to find lions in a pride, or chimps in a troop, or fish in a school, or ferrets in a business. That's true, by the way. A group of ferrets is called a business, just like a group of pandas is an embarrassment, a group of porpoises is a turmoil, and a group of lemurs is a conspiracy. But with our kind, people, that is, Pain seemed to be saying that we organically organize into cultures which know how to live off the land and such. So the issue is, why leave that and become civilized if there's no guarantee that civilized life is going to be any better? I would even add that the odds are, after a few generations of civilized life, you'd lose a lot of the skills and culture that kept people alive for hundreds of thousands of years ex kiwitas, so that when shit hits the fan, you've got no idea how to survive outside of civilization, much less thrive. So, that very cynical default situation that I described earlier might actually apply more to a civilized person dropped into the natural world than it would do tribal folks who actually know what's up outside. Incidentally, way back in ancient times when most of the human race was still tribal, and the first cities were just starting to pop up, it was very common for people to say fuck this to city life and just bust out and go back to living the old-fashioned way. And I say bust out because in very ancient times, a lot of people who lived in cities didn't exactly arrive there of their own accord, if you catch my meaning. For more on that very interesting history, read Against the Grain by James C. Scott, which I referenced in episode one. This kind of speaks to Payne's point, I think, in that if the new alternative of civilization ain't working out, you can always go back to the way people lived for 99% of our species' history. And people actually did do that, which might suggest that tribal life ain't all bad. And maybe that sheds some light on why civilizations have always found it necessary to wipe out tribal, naturalistic cultures wherever they find them. Case in point, this fucking continent. Competition is a sin. John D. Rockefeller said. But I digress. I think, in the end, I'm going to have to agree with Payne on this overall point. The next point he brings up is this. Quote, It is a position, not to be controverted, that the earth, in its natural, uncultivated state, was, and ever would have continued to be, the common property of the human race. In that state, every man would have been born to property. He would have been a joint life proprietor with the rest in the property of the soil, and in all its natural productions, vegetable and animal. Unquote. While the previous point was just about what the purpose of civilization ought to be, this point is actually an axiom on which he's about to base his proposal for how to realize that purpose. Therefore, it's worth examining. It should be noted that Paine was by no means the first to posit this axiom of property. The idea that all land begins as common property comes from the philosophy of John Locke, 
who was a major influence on the revolutionaries of the late 18th century, particularly the American revolutionaries of whom Paine was one. Again, like the previous point, it sounds nice. However, it's not exactly a bulletproof proposition. Let's say it's true. All uncultivated land is the common property of the human race. And let's say there are one million people. Okay, so where exactly is my one millionth share? Is it that my share is in the land which is local to me, and that someone living on the other side of the planet's share is in the land that's local to him? But what if I live in a luscious green forest and he lives in an abysmal tundra or something? Not all environments are created equal, after all. In that case, the value of our respective one millionth shares would not be equal. People also spread out differently based on environmental factors, so it's not like each person will only ever occupy their personal millionth of the globe. So maybe it's that we each possess a one millionth share of all land globally. All right, so I've got a millionth share of the land that Tundra Guy lives on, which I will never visit, and he's got a millionth share of the land that I live on, which he will never visit. But that also means that we each only have a millionth share of the land that we live on. In other words, I have just as much a claim to land I will literally never see as I do to land that I will live and die on. That seems kind of odd and also totally impractical. And doesn't this mean that childbirth is robbery? Or I guess at the very least, before we have a kid, we're going to have to get approval from the rest of the planet, right? Because if my wife and I have a kid, now there are a million and one people. By having a child, we stole a fraction of Tundra Guy's share and every other human being's share of all the land and gave it to that kid. And of course, Tundra Guy's going to have a kid, which takes another fraction from everybody. Now we've all got a million and two share of the earth. As people continue to procreate, everyone's share just diminishes and diminishes until what? We each own a seven billionth of every piece of uncultivated land. What is that? What, what would that even mean? And also, going back to a population of one million, just for the sake of simplicity, doesn't that mean that before I do anything, anywhere, even so much as walk or sit down, I should have to confer with the other 999,999 people on the planet? I'm just a one millionth owner, after all, so I can't just go around and be making all these executive decisions. Or here's another one. Imagine a million square feet of land. One millionth of a million square feet is one square foot. So out of that million square feet, I have claim to one square foot. But does it actually have to be one continual square foot, though? Or can it be a sort of diffuse square foot spread throughout the million square feet? Because only one of those is useful, and not very useful at that. Let's be charitable and say that it's one solid square foot that represents my share in the land. But wouldn't it also be the case that I only have a millionth share of that square foot as well? And then a millionth of that millionth? and a millionth of that millionth, and so on and so on and so on, if all land really is common property? You see where this goes, right? The idea of universal common property 
either breaks down into total 100% democratic dictatorship by every person on the planet over every person on and every nanometer of the planet, which is insane, or it breaks down into, actually, there is no default property or common ownership after all. If that's confusing, I'll put it this way. Property basically means those things which one has legitimate, exclusive control over. You have the right to use the thing to the exclusion of everyone else. If a plot of land is no one's property, then no one has legitimate, exclusive control over it. If a plot of land is common property, as in everybody owns it, then no one has legitimate, exclusive control over it. It kind of winds up being the same as no one owning it, because no one has any special right to do anything with it. The difference is, in the case of where the land is not property when uncultivated, someone can rightfully begin cultivating it at any time, because there's nothing excluding them from doing so. Whereas in the case where the uncultivated land is common property, nobody would ever have the right to cultivate it unless everyone on earth granted their permission, because they each have quote-unquote exclusive control. Now, I know I wasn't there at the time, but I highly doubt that this is what happened when agriculture got started. So, nah, I'm just not buying this Lockean common property premise. I definitely think that Murray Rothbard's notion of no default common property makes far more sense for all the reasons I just gave, and believe me, there are more. Unfortunately, Payne's entire proposal is going to rest specifically on the idea of original common ownership. He goes on to say that this common property arrangement of his works fine if there aren't too many people, but inevitably will break down as population rises. The only way to support a large population, he says, is to begin cultivating the land to introduce agriculture. This does certainly seem to be the case. As I said before, you can't really base your nation's food supply on unsuspecting deer that wander up the road. You need something more stable and systematic, and what do you know, agriculture fits the bill. Quote, The idea of landed property commenced with cultivation, and there was no such thing as landed property before that time. Unquote. By landed property, he means total private ownership of a piece of land. In other words, the nullification of the common right to all land. Exclusive rights, that is, property, is only a thing because of agriculture. Now here's where it gets interesting. Payne says two things. One, quote, It's impossible to separate the improvement made by cultivation from the earth itself, upon which that improvement is made, unquote. And two, quote, it is the value of the improvement only, and not the earth itself, that is individual property, unquote. So you own the potatoes that you grow, but you don't really own the land they came out of. And, if it weren't for the land, there would be no potatoes, so you sort of owe whoever does own the land for the opportunity to grow your potatoes on it. And who owns the land? Everybody! The land itself is the common property of the human race. Only the cultivation is owned by an individual. On this basis, Thomas Paine concludes, quote, 
Every proprietor, therefore, of cultivated land owes to the community a ground rent. Unquote. They owe rent because they're essentially borrowing the right to use that land from everybody else. They're borrowing it from other people who might have used it, and if they're any good at what they do, they're making money while doing so. So because they're using public property to the exclusion of everyone else in order to accrue private wealth, they owe the public. Quote, Cultivation is, at least, one of the greatest natural improvements ever made by human invention. It has given to created earth a tenfold value. But the landed monopoly that began with it has produced the greatest evil. It has dispossessed more than half the inhabitants of every nation of their natural inheritance, without providing for them, as ought to have been done, as an indemnification for that loss, and he has thereby created a species of poverty and wretchedness that did not exist before. In advocating the case of the persons thus dispossessed, it is a right and not a charity that I am pleading for. But it is that kind of right which, being neglected at first, could not be brought forward afterwards till heaven had opened the way by a revolution in the system of government. Let us then do honor to revolution by justice, and give currency to their principles by blessings. Unquote. This is why I said earlier that his whole system will rely on the premise of original common ownership. If the land naturally belongs to everybody, then it makes sense that rent is owed to everybody. But if the land naturally belongs to no one, then who is owed the rent? Nobody. So in a nutshell, he's saying that common people have been robbed of profits they were owed forever, and there was never any chance of the old system rectifying that. But now the revolution can set things right. Of course, later on, socialists would adopt a similar attitude to the proletariat, essentially that they've been exploited by the bourgeoisie forever, that the capitalist system could never rectify this, and that the great socialist revolution will fix this injustice. And as I said before, both Paine and the later socialists are talking about the means of production being owned in common. Only for Paine, this means land, and for the socialists, this means factories. And land. However, Paine does something that would make any doctrinaire socialist absolutely apoplectic. He makes it very, very clear that he also believes that individuals do own all of the fruits of their own labor. Obviously, this is a fundamentally non-socialist view. Quote, Whilst, therefore, I advocate the right and interest myself in the hard case of all those who have been thrown out of their natural inheritance by the introduction of the system of landed property, I equally defend the right of the possessor to the part which is his. Unquote. To Paine, the whole notion of common property begins and ends with uncultivated land. He points out again and again that the good bits of civilization all come from private ownership, that is, people owning what they cultivate and doing with it what they will. He does not want to change that. He only wants to ameliorate society's downtrodden by returning to them what they are owed. He doesn't want to collectivize farms or anything like that. 
He wants to let the farmers keep their property, what they continue to cultivate and what they're making money on. They keep the land. He only wants them to pay the public for the right to use the land. In other words, they're owed a ground rent, not a portion of the rich guy's cultivated goods, not even a portion of the profits he makes from selling the goods, but merely a ground rent for letting the rich guy set up shop there. And Payne wants this process of melioration to be as painless to the property owner as possible. Quote, The fault, however, is not in the present possessors. No complaint is intended or ought to be alleged against them unless they adopt the crime by opposing justice, that is, his proposal. The fault is in the system, and it has stolen imperceptibly upon the world, aided afterwards by the agrarian law of the sword. But the fault can be made to reform itself by successive generations without diminishing or deranging the property of any of the present possessors, and yet the operation of the fund can commence and will be in full activity the first year of its establishment or soon after, as I shall show. Unquote. So, while before the sort of aesthetic of what he was saying seemed in line with socialism, what he's saying here is absolutely not socialism. This is an interesting cat, right? So let's hear his actual proposal, as if he didn't already spill the beans in that long-ass title. Quote, To create a national fund, out of which there shall be paid to every person, when arrived at the age of twenty-one years, the sum of fifteen pounds sterling, as a compensation in part for the loss of his or her natural inheritance, by the introduction of the system of landed property and also the sum of ten pounds per annum during life to every person now living of the age of fifty years and to all others as they shall arrive at that age, unquote. Notice how consistent he's being here. He specifically says that everyone is entitled to this money because everyone owns all the uncultivated land. Here it is again, quote, It is proposed that the payments, as already stated, be made to every person, rich or poor, unquote. Not exactly from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, after all. So everyone gets a welcome to adulthood shot of cash at 21, presumably to use as capital to start making their own living, and then a yearly retirement check after the age of 50. Also, just for reference, I should say that Adjusted for inflation and converted into 2021 dollars, the 15 pounds sterling every 21-year-old would get is the equivalent of $1,933.86 today. And the yearly 10 pounds for the retirees is equal to $1,289.24. So you're not exactly going to be living off of what you get out of the national fund. This is hardly a welfare state he's describing. It's a COVID check. Now, I bet you're wondering how this fund will be funded. Tax dollars, right? Well, not exactly. We already established that he believes everybody should own what they cultivate. Also, if you know Tom Paine, you know he's not really the most trusting guy of governments. So he says in here specifically that the money for the national fund, quote, ought always to go to society and not to the government, unquote. This is actually a really revealing statement he makes here, because, as I'm sure you know, 
there's a tendency of people to equate society with government. So if, for instance, somebody were to say they don't think there ought to be a government, most people would interpret that to mean that they don't think there ought to be a society, which leads to such protestations as, you want no government, but we need some kind of social organization. But this is a complete straw man, and a pretty weak one at that. Not only are societies and states not the same thing, but humans have organized themselves into non-state societies for the vast majority of their existence on this planet. Again, I recommend Against the Grain by James C. Scott, and even the first part of Volume 1 of Will Durant's Story of Civilization. Anyway, bit of a tangent, but I just wanted to point out that Paine understood this distinction between society and state, and clarified that the fund he's proposing should not be a government program, but should instead be a function of the actual society itself. But where does the actual money come from, if not from state taxes? Well, I will tell you. The National Fund will be filled by all people making a one-time payment of 10% on their inheritance. Okay? So nobody ever has any of their income taken from them. Only the dead pay into the National Fund. And that's it. That's how it's going to work, he says. I imagine that even back when he was alive, people were saying, No way! A one-time payment of 10% on inheritance couldn't possibly cover everyone. Certainly we might say that now. But remember, we're only paying people on their 21st birthday, and once a year after they turn 50. And we're not paying them that much. And, you know, there are some people out there who inherit a lot of money, such that even just 10% of it would seem like a whole lot to the rest of us. We would do well to remember that Thomas Paine wasn't an academic, per se. He was an engineer, a hard-nosed, practical man who liked to solve big problems for fun. So he didn't just say, gee, wouldn't it be nice if things could work out this way? No. He does the math, in the hopes that other problem solvers will see it and begin to implement his solution ASAP. Remember that I said I was going to piss you off today? Grab your calculator, we're about to run some numbers. He says first that adulthood begins at 21, and then estimates that the average person lives 30 years beyond that, to age 51 or thereabouts. Of course, he acknowledges that some people will live to be 80, while others will die at 4. But we're talking averages here, and anecdotes aren't averages. Based on this average lifespan of 51 years, we notice that there is, on average, a 30-year period in which people may hold property. No one really owns any property before 21, and no one owns any property after they're dead. So, on this basis, he says that 30 years is, quote, the average of time in which the whole property or capital of a nation, or some equal thereto, will have passed through one entire revolution in descent, that is, will have gone by deaths to new possessors, unquote. Put simply, 30 years is the length of an economic generation. Okay. So if the whole of a nation's wealth revolves over a period of 30 years, then one-thirtieth of that wealth is the amount which revolves every one year, according to his model. England, he says, has a national capital of 1.3 billion pounds sterling, 
Remember, we're talking about 1796. This is the whole of its wealth, which would take 30 years to turn over to the next generation. One thirtieth of this, one single year's worth of the national wealth, is roughly 43.3 million pounds. Of this 43.3 million, he says that 30 million will go to the direct heirs of the deceased, while the remaining 13.3 million will be sort of shuffled around among strangers, some of whom may be distant relatives and others of whom may not be relatives at all. However, he says man and woman is related to society, so that society itself ought to be treated as a sort of heir, certainly more so than some distant cousin or someone like that. Thus, the further the closest relation of the deceased is, the higher the proportion of the inheritance is owed to society. He figures this will add approximately another 10% to our total. And remember, this 10% is only being added to the money going to indirect heirs. Direct heirs pay nothing more than the initial 10%. All right, all together now. Total English economy, 1.3 billion pounds. One year's worth of the English economy, 43.3 million pounds. Portion of this going to direct heirs, 30 million pounds. 10% of this 30 million to be deposited into the national fund. 3 million pounds, leaving the direct heirs with a total of 27 million pounds to be divided amongst them. Portion of 43.3 million pounds going to indirect heirs. 13.3 million. 10% of 13.3 million for the national fund plus an additional 10% accounting for those who die with no direct heirs, gets us to 2.6 million pounds. So now, by adding the 3 million from the direct heirs' inheritance to the 2.6 million from the indirect heirs, we get a grand total of 5.6 million pounds coming out of a yearly economy of 43.3 million pounds sterling. 5.6 million into the national fund each year, 12.933% of the initial 43.3 million. Whew, haven't done this much math in a while. On to step two. He figures the population of England is about 7.5 million, and the population over 50 is about 400,000. He says that there are going to be a bunch of old wealthy people who don't feel the need to take the money because they're already wealthy. I don't know about that. But regardless, we will assume everybody does take the money because, as he says, everybody has a right to it. Next, he figures that there are about 100,000 people turning 21 each year, though many of them, 10,000 he says, will be inclined not to take the money because they will already be wealthy enough, probably thanks to their parents. Yet, while in the case of the 50-plus-year-olds he plays it safe, and assumes that they might all take the money on the basis that they have a right to it, he does not, in his calculation, assume that all 100,021 year olds will take their share, even though they too have a right to it. Not to be uncharitable here, but I suspect this is because doing so kind of fucks up his whole plan. Anyway, 
Let's go with his number of 90,000 and run through it, and see how much each group is going to get each year. Out of the annual fund of £5.6 million, the amount of money distributed among 400,000 50-plus-year-olds at £10 per year comes to a total of £4 million. The amount to be distributed among 90,000 21-year-olds at £15 comes to £1.35 million. This accounts for £5.35 million of the total national fund, leaving a remainder of £316,666 sterling. This, he says, we'll give to the blind. Virtuous and righteous indeed. Just for the sake of argument, let's play with his math and assume that all 100,021 year olds take the cash. In that case, there would be a payout of £1.5 million from the £5.6 million national fund, which would leave only £100,000 for the blind. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't give us any numbers of how many blind people there were in England back in 1796, and that's not information that I'm privy to at the moment. We can only hope that £100,000 is enough of a fund to give each of them £10 a year, not to mention the deafs, cripples, and crazies. All right, now that does it for the numerically intensive part of the show. And at this point, some of you might be thinking, okay, so now we've got a plan for a social safety net in the year 1796. Big friggin' deal. And that's fair. Honestly, I'm not even convinced his proposal would work out in 1796, much less today. Imagine trying to port this model into the present American economy. We become adults at 18, not 21, though it does seem like there are some people trying to change that. The average lifespan is 79, but we retire generally at 62. So 62 minus 18 is 44, giving us an economic generation of 44 years. But here's the issue. Today's economy is nothing like the economy of 44 years ago. And back 44 years ago, an economic generation would have been shorter anyway, because lifespans were shorter. Maybe back in 1796 or 7, economies and lifespans were consistent enough to build such a model. But they sure aren't that consistent today. The length of an economic generation aside, I don't even know how you would calculate the national wealth. And even if you could, you'd have to figure out how much of it is actually inheritable and then decide on a percentage to remove from that and place into the national fund. Even still, you'd have to deal with the problem of inconsistency. I seriously doubt the national wealth today is anything like what it was back in 1977, the beginning of this current economic generation. But Payne wasn't designing a system for us in 2021. He was designing something that would work in his own time. And the particulars of his model aside, what really matters is the spirit of what he was proposing. He wanted to figure out a way to give everyone within society a chance to make it on their own. He wanted to eliminate poverty while still, and this is key, while still preserving private property rights. To put it maybe a little too simply, he doesn't want to eat the rich. He just wants to feed the poor. And yet, as I said, I think that the premise on which he bases this whole thing is fundamentally flawed. Original common property just doesn't make any sense. And here I'll give you another problem with this premise that I didn't even mention earlier. He says that uncultivated land is everyone's property. And yet, 
it would appear that his fund is only paying those who live in a given nation. But if we apply the same reasoning, shouldn't the money from the national fund go to every person on earth? Furthermore, because the nation is itself taking up land to the exclusion of other nations which might have used it, doesn't the nation itself owe ground rent to all other nations, just as its citizens owe ground rent to every other nation's citizens? Why wouldn't it? If we go ahead with this, then either the amounts distributed by the fund will be so small they will effectively be worthless, like a penny a year or something, or every person will be charged so much in ground rent that they very quickly lose their property, in which case there could no longer be a national fund. Maybe both of these things would happen. Now maybe you'll say, no, the national fund should only be distributed to those in the nation. But why? Is the uncultivated land that's being rented the common property of the human race, or not? You can say that it's actually the property of the nation, but then you'd be totally deviating from his argument that the whole reason the land is originally common property is because it was created by God, not man. And certainly no nation created the earth. So that said, regardless of its questionable applicability, I do have to conclude that this is, indeed, a distinctly liberal alternative to socialism, rather than an early grope at socialism. He's basing his reasoning on John Locke's principles of property, namely, that all land is originally the common property of the human race, which I disagree with, and that personal or private property is created once an individual mixes his or her labor with the uncultivated land, which I do agree with. These principles are absolutely foundational to Enlightenment liberal thought. In keeping with these principles, he agrees that the individual rightly owns the fruits of his or her own labor, and that no portion of these fruits are owed to anybody else. He celebrates riches, and never applies the prospect of collectivism to the actual fruits of labor. In short, though he and the socialists may have identified the same or similar problems with society, their solutions would differ drastically. He sought only to pay people what he thought they were owed, in this case, ground rent, based on the idea that the land was their property, which is in keeping with the capitalist idea of land ownership, as I understand it, paying rent to a landlord or landlords, that is. They're owed because they are owners. And I do believe that socialists are not historically amenable to either the idea of rent or landlords, no matter how numerous the landlords may be. In the end, almost as if he intended to differentiate himself from the later socialists, he says that the ownership class must be protected against those revolutionaries who seek to relieve them of their wealth. Quote, The state of civilization that has prevailed throughout Europe is as unjust in its principles as it is horrid in its effects, and it is the consciousness of this and the apprehension that such a state cannot continue when once investigation begins in any country that makes the possessors of property dread every idea of a revolution. It is the hazard and not the principles of a revolution that retards their progress. This being the case, it is necessary as well as for the protection of property as for the sake of justice and humanity, to form a system that, whilst it preserves one part of society from wretchedness, shall secure the other from depredation. Unquote. Despite his obvious liberalism, 
Some socialists may still claim that this text is somewhat transitional, insofar as traditional socialists believe that history progresses from one stage to another. This particular period of revolution, from the 1770s to approximately 1800, is part of what Marx's co-author Friedrich Engels called the rise of the middle class. In his analysis, these were not revolutions of the downtrodden proletariat against their upper-class oppressors. They were seizures of political and economic power from the church and the nobility by the bourgeoisie. The proletariat remained at the bottom. It's this revolution, the passing of power from nobility to bourgeoisie, that folks like Paine and Franklin and Robespierre and Lafayette participated in. Still, though, Engels believed this revolution was necessary. The power first had to pass from the nobility to the bourgeoisie for the proletariat to finally take the power from the bourgeoisie. Therefore, a socialist may construe any revolutionary text of the era as quote-unquote transitional, particularly one like this that points out wealth gaps and suggests a social safety net. But, removed from such an imposed ideological context, the work itself is undoubtedly liberal. And by liberal, of course, I mean in the Enlightenment sense of the word. The title of this episode is A Question. Agrarian Justice, a Liberal Alternative to Socialism? I think now we can remove that question mark. Paine's model is, indeed, an alternative, not a forerunner, to socialism, in that, in its essence, it contradicts what would later become fundamental socialist tenets, even though it does seek to address similar issues. Still, for it to be a viable alternative to anything, we're going to want it to make sense. And as I've said over and over again, I think Paine's main premise is busted. And yet, I think he might be onto something, even if he's not basing it on all the right ideas. I think there might be an easy fix, as a matter of fact. So first off, I agreed with his premise that if there's any point to civilization at all, it would be to set the standard of living for everyone above the natural default. Fair enough. Here's what he says on the origins of society as distinct from government in his famous pamphlet, Common Sense. Quote, Let us suppose a small number of persons settled in some sequestered part of the earth, unconnected with the rest. They will then represent the first peopling of any country or of the world. In this state of natural liberty, society will be their first thought. A thousand motives will excite them thereto. The strength of one man is so unequal to his wants and his mind so unfitted for perpetual solitude, that he is soon obliged to seek assistance and relief of another, who in his turn requires the same. Four or five united would be able to raise a tolerable dwelling in the midst of a wilderness, but one man might labor out of the common period of life without accomplishing anything. When he had felled his timber, he could not remove it, nor erect it after it was removed. Hunger in the meantime would urge him to quit his work, and every different want would call him a different way. Disease, nay, even misfortune, would be death, for though neither might be mortal, yet either would disable him from living, and reduce him to a state in which he might rather be said to perish than to die. Thus necessity, like a gravitating power, would soon form our newly arrived emigrants into society, the reciprocal blessings of which would supersede and render the obligations of law and government unnecessary 
while they remained perfectly just to each other, unquote. This'll sound mighty familiar if you've listened to the work I've recently done on Plato's Republic. Essentially, they both credit the rise of society to the individual's inability to live in total solitude. People must cooperate. Payne goes on to say that government comes into being when these societies grow comfortable and, well, somewhat lazy. Then the government serves as the sort of glue which holds somewhat spoiled people together so the society doesn't just come undone. But that's not really what's important here. What's important right now is the origin of society itself, which is simply the division of labor. The necessity of the division of labor is the basis of cooperative humankind. And it's here, I think, that his national fund idea becomes salvageable. Not because all uncultivated land belongs to everybody, but because if you pledge yourself to such a society, it's now in your interest that the vast majority are also able to make productive contributions, not only so they can afford your berries or baskets or whatever it is that you make, but so that you and everyone else have access to a larger and more diverse and more sustainable market. And of course, this simple society is presumably situated atop some land, and is probably using resources that come out of the land. Now, they're not renting this land from the rest of humanity, that's crazy, but rather they're mutually agreeing within their own society, not with the planet, but with their own community, to get as much good out of that land for as long as possible. It's in their interest to work sustainably in order to preserve that land for future generations. Therefore, if they have a national fund... It's not for ground rent, but it's more like a trust fund for their children and for the society itself. Instead of doing what we do and pushing off our debt to future generations, they would be doing the opposite, and it would be based on the idea that a society, just like any joint stock company, requires mutual investment. But here I go, spinning a utopian yarn of my own. The reality is, we're not starting from scratch, with, as Payne puts it, a small number of persons settled in some sequestered part of the earth unconnected with the rest. We're in a country with trillions and trillions of dollars of debt, the biggest military in world history, and something like 300 million people who currently hate each other. The only way any simple society starts from scratch over here is if something really, really bad happens. Which is a possibility, of course. I know everyone just sort of forgot after 1991, but there are still nukes, you know. I think that the best we can do at the moment is try to set up small communities within the larger fucked-up American society. See episode 8 of this podcast, Navigating Dystopia with Stefan Verstappen, for more on that. Maybe, in a small community, something like Payne's National Fund would be a good idea. Though I would humbly suggest basing the logic of it on a mutual agreement that it's an investment in the future that benefits everyone, rather than on some wacky idea that you're paying rent. Anyway, despite the flaws with Payne's system, I find it preferable to the modern welfare model. Payne's model incentivizes productivity by issuing the young a dose of capital to start their own thing and immunizes against dependency on the system by providing the same amount to everyone, rich or poor, only once. Until they retire, of course. And this needn't be the only charity or charity-like organization. Nothing in this model is inherently monopolistic. 
It is, quite literally, a common wealth, and nothing more. In conclusion, agrarian justice is a proposal to ameliorate the problems of poverty, couched thoroughly in the Enlightenment liberal tradition. Yet its efficacy is only theoretical, as it has never really been attempted to my knowledge, and even then it only makes theoretical sense after some pretty heavy alterations. I certainly like the idea of a community taking care of its own, rather than having some gigantic nanny state that gets people dependent on it for everything. I recommend that, after this episode, you re-listen to episode 8, where my guest and I discuss the idea of mutual aid societies in greater detail. My aim in this episode was not to actually provide a model for a society. That would be crazy for me to do. I just wanted to bring attention to this forgotten work by one of my favorite historical figures and throw some, hopefully, constructive criticism at it. Most importantly, however, I want to get you thinking about the makeup of societies, how they actually function, and how they support their members. Even if you totally disagree with everything that I said here, the point is that we can all think about constructive solutions to social problems together. Remedies don't have to come from on high. The stagnant, delusional, gargantuan state utopia says, Come to me, come to me, I'll take care of you, I'll solve all your problems. But we don't have to bow to this bloated, treacherous, murderous corporate state empire to survive. We can grow food and make goods and trade them amongst ourselves. We can quite literally create new economies with our own national funds if we so desire. The nation-state of America gave up on Thomas Paine a long time ago, but that doesn't mean that we have to. As he declared in Common Sense, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. I beg your pardon I never promised you a rose garden Along with the sunshine there's gotta be a little rain sometime When you take, you gotta give So live and let live or let go I beg your pardon I never promised you a rose garden I could promise you things like big diamond rings But you don't find roses growing on stalks of clover Sweet talking, you could make it come true I would give you the world right now on a silver platter But what would it matter? So smile for a while and let's be jolly Love shouldn't be so melancholy Come along and share the good times while we can I beg your pardon There's gotta be a little rain sometime I beg your pardon I never promised you a rose garden I could sing you a tune and promise you the moon But if that's what it takes to hold you 
just as soon let you go But there's one thing I want you to 